We're on what? March, April, May, June. So we're going on the fourth month of quarantine, of the pandemic. I'm an audio journalist. And a few years ago, I decided to do this assignment with some friends. It was a kind of assignment where we had to turn around a story in 24 hours. We were talking on the phone, just spitballing ideas, and just overall talking about how we were feeling in 2020. I was only recording my side of the conversation, so all you hear on the tape is me. And there's one thing I haven't done in so long that I completely miss, and that's dancing. Like, I haven't moved in in this like grinding dancing way (laughs) which sounds really weird to say out loud and then one of the people I'm talking to brought something up I had mentioned in passing about my time in a party crew I haven't really talked a lot about it when I do talk about it it's usually like a haha I was part of part of this party crew um haha like you know, we had little signs and stuff like that. Um, but it I doesn't really ever get deep where I'm talking about um, how dangerous it was. When I was a teen in the mid-2000s, I was part of a party scene. A bunch of my girlfriends and I, we formed a group and we called ourselves a party crew. The party crew scene was all underground parties. We were partying in backyards and warehouses, setting up a dance floor wherever we could. And what made it unique is that it wasn't just me and my friends who were into this. There were hundreds, maybe thousands of mostly Latinx teens all across LA in the scene, in places like East LA, South Central, and the San Gabriel Valley, where I grew up. My parents are both from Peru. They came to the U.S. in the mid-80s. And growing up, we had some rules. As a student, my parents had high expectations of me. No bad grades, nothing below a B. And when I started high school, I had a curfew. I had to be home by nine. I know, I know, those are typical rules for a lot of kids, especially for kids of immigrants. But when you're the oldest and the first in your family born in this country, the stakes automatically feel higher. And in my house, it felt like there was this other extra layer. My mom is religious. She grew up evangelical as a teen in Peru. So when it was time to raise me, she raised me the only way she knew. Church every Sunday was a given. But there was also stuff like no dancing, no dating, no trick-or-treating on Halloween. It was a whole thing. But I knew that as long as I stayed out of trouble and followed the rules... I could fly by as your typical good, church-going daughter of immigrants. But when I found the party crew scene, I felt like I was able to become a new version of myself. It was the one place where I felt comfortable enough to move my body, let loose and be wild. Free from my parents' rules and expectations. A safe space. That was 20 years ago. And when I was talking to my friend about this time, I realized it was the first time in a long time that I talked about the party crew scene to someone who wasn't a part of it. 
listening back to myself, I can hear a kind of hesitation in my voice. Um, I guess, and, and I, you know, I was going through all that without telling my parents. Like, I wasn't telling them I was going to go see my friend who got shot. I wasn't telling them that I was doing all these things. It felt like I was sharing a hazy dream, these fragments of my past. It's not really a time in my life that I talk a lot about, because as fun as it was, there was also a dark side to the scene. It's a Saturday night house party in Huntington Park. Strobe lights color an evening of dancing, drinking, and dope smoking. The intent, they say, is to have a good time, but the price for that good time can often be violence or even death. In an instant, a party scene can turn into a war zone. These were the parties that made headlines when something bad happened. And it made us teens who were part of the party crews seem out of control. The people who throw these kind of parties are called party crews, but police say they're very similar to gangs. I ended up watching a bunch of old news coverage of the scene. And it was jarring to relive those memories. It was a time and place I recognized, but it felt like it only caught one side of the story. An outsider's perspective. On January 25th, 2006, Emery Munoz's lifeless body was found nearby this warehouse on Marisol and Olympic in Boyle Heights, a popular area for underground parties. And that's when I came across a story about a teen girl. Her name was Emery Munoz. She was killed in 2006, and her case was never solved. Investigators say an illegal rave party was going on at the warehouse on Marisol Street the night she was killed. The teenager was killed after attending one of those parties. She was in an all-girl party crew, like I was, around the same time that I was going out. Her killing, they think she was strangled, now tied to the world of illegal underground parties. Learning about Emery... Immediately, it felt so personal to me. It was hard to hear about a teen girl who didn't make it out of the scene. She was only a few years younger than me, growing up a few cities away from me. I wondered, could I have bumped into her at a party? I kept thinking about her case. I couldn't get it out of my head. The idea that maybe it was pure luck, that something didn't happen to me back then, And the fact that nearly two decades later, still nobody knew what really happened to her. I needed to find out more. So I started to dig into her story. And doing that would start me on a journey to unpack that time in my life. I joined a party crew at 15. And now as an adult, I see it in a different light. And I want to know, what does it mean when your safe space isn't actually safe. From iHeart's My Cultura Podcast Network, Vice and Elia Studios. This is Party Cruise, the untold story. A look back at the scene that I came of age in 
and an unsolved murder that is forever tied to it. I'm Janice Yamoka. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I knew I needed to start somewhere to look into Emery's case. So I started looking for the names I found in the coverage around her murder. So I think we have found Jose Munoz, who is Emery's father. Um, so let me give him a call. Hello. Hola, ¿es Jose? Yo soy Jose Munoz. Estoy haciendo un reportaje sobre una... Una, una niña que se llamaba Emery Muñoz y quería saber si tú eras el papá. Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, okay. <laughs> Muchas gracias. Okay, so I'm calling who I think could be Cherry, one of the heads of Vicious Ladies at that time. Okay, wish me luck. Hi, Becky. This is Janice. Um, I'm a reporter, producer with Vice News. I actually got your contact, um, your number from Crystal. I still get nervous every time I leave a voicemail for some reason. I look forward to speaking with you. Bye. 
It took me months, but I found Emery's aunt, Becky Haro, and her sister, Crystal Gutierrez. After a few long conversations on the phone, they agreed to meet me at a halfway point. We met inside a hotel in Pomona in a small conference room that came with free water bottles and a jar of peppermints. A-plus hospitality. Becky and Crystal were both warm and friendly. They're both petite with big brown eyes, just like Emery in the pictures I've seen of her. The three of us sat at the end of a long table and talked for hours. And I not only had it for a brief moment of time, but in those six years, she taught me basically everything you would expect from a big sister. That's Crystal. She was six when her sister went missing. I learned that Emery was the oldest of three siblings, one brother and one little sister, Crystal. I had my bodyguard. (laughs) (laughs) In what ways did she protect you? In every way imaginable. Um, One thing I really remember is my mom would always yell at me because I was a little brat when I was little. And my my sister, she would just jump in. Don't yell at my sister. Don't yell at my sister. Or my brother would try to punk on me. She would end up like punking on him. She every way, anything that I wanted, she got for me. Um, toys, candies, whatever it was, she would get for me. Our mom wasn't always, you know, mentally there. She was physically there. She wasn't always mentally there. So my sister took on a very big role, and she was always making sure I was fed, bathed, clothed, everything. She took care of me. I'm the eldest kid in my family, too. So I know it comes with a lot of responsibility. Emery's mom's family is Mexican-American. They're an immigrant household like mine. As a teen, sometimes you take for granted how much influence you have over your siblings, how a small gesture can create a lasting impact. They used to go take, like, those 2000 pictures. The star shots. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, actually, I found one on my phone the other day of me and Emery when I think I was, like, four. So she had to be, like, 12, 13. Star shots were like these wallet-sized pictures you would take with your best friend, your boyfriend, or your little sister. You would show up with your freshly plucked brows and best glossy lip to a small photo studio inside a mall, pose in front of an airbrushed backdrop, and wait for, like, an hour to get your pictures printed. Very 90s, very 2000s. One of Crystal's few mementos of her sister Emery is a star shot they took together. What's the background of the one that you oh are in? Oh it's like blue with stars and stairs. I love it. <laughs> I could show you. Oh my God, so cute. <laughs> Let's see, describe it, describe it for me. So there's a, there's a blue background. Uh, there's stairs and we're supposed to be sitting on the stairs. Um, my sister, I think, was going through an eyebrow crisis at the time and got a little too carried away with the tweezers. <laughs> and she, she had on a white shirt, um, kind of like the three-fourth quarter um, sleeve. In the picture, Emery has her long brown hair pulled back, half up, half down. And her mouth is closed with a soft smile. It's like her signature smile. I've seen it in a lot of pictures of her as a teen. Uh, she's holding me, she's hugging me. I was... I think four right here. I have on a blue little sweater. Uh, It has fluff around the neck because 2000s baby in the prime. (laughs) Back then, Starshots brought friendships and relationships to a new level. It meant you were close. 
and the world was going to see it. That was our very first picture. I don't remember that day, but I feel super connected to that day. Crystal is in her early 20s, and every story she shared of her sister peeled back a layer of Emery that I couldn't find in the news coverage. She was always dancing. No matter what the song was, she was always dancing. And I remember she would try to teach me, and I was just right there like a little four-year-old, didn't know what the heck I was doing. Crystal shared one of her earliest memories of Emery growing up in their home on one of the highest hills in City Terrace. I think we lived at the top of like the highest hill because we lived on three. And so we lived right on the top. But I remember us dancing like outside. We had like the biggest like garden ever. Bunch of grass, bunch of flowers. We would just be dancing. She loved dancing. That's Becky Haro, Emery's aunt and godmother, her Nina. That summer, I wrote a letter to the family, including Emery's mother, Maria. But she didn't respond to us at first. However, her sister Becky, who over the years has been sort of a spokesperson for the family regarding Emery's case, she did get back to us. She let her sister know that she was talking to us. She used to tell me I was like her second mom. Becky tells me Emery was her informal dance coach. She actually told me I had two left feet. I remember her saying, when you're going to do some kind of dance like this, she says, don't put your legs like that because that wouldn't make it look sexy. Because you have to spread them a little bit and move your hips side to side. And then she will go behind me. I will be cooking or doing something. And then she says, are you practicing your hips? And I will just look at her and laugh. And then she will go behind me and then she will move my hips. She will start cracking up. She said that I, I was like a stick. And she goes, you need to, like, relax. Relax. <laughs> there you go. Relax. Move those hips. Emery with her family was playful. She felt comfortable enough to let loose and be silly. The last time I saw her was uh, Christmas Day. And I just remember her going, bye, Nina. See you later. And I said, bye, sweetie. And she uh, flew a kiss throw a kiss and uh, that's my last memory and I can still see it here as a matter of fact she wrote me a little note that day before I went home this it's just a piece of paper for anybody but it's treasure for me Becky pulls out a little blue post-it note that she's been carrying with her for over a decade do you mind reading it to me Aww. To my Nina and Uncle Ron, Merry Christmas. I love you guys with all my heart. Emery. That was the last time Becky saw her. To learn more about Emery's last days, I talked to the friends she was with before she went missing. That's after the break. Alejandra Toledo. She was one of Emery's friends in high school. Hi, this is Janice. I hope you have some time to talk right now. Yeah, I do. Um, I just, if I talk a little slow, it's just because I got my wisdom teeth taken out this morning. Oh my gosh. Um, 
Yeah, but I'm okay to talk. Thank you for talking to me while, while you're a little <laughs> swollen. I had mine taken out like years ago and I was like chipmunk cheeks forever. <laughs> Yeah, oh. no, I am right now, but this will distract me. <laughs> After our initial phone call, I met up with Alejandra in her family home in Bell Gardens, a few miles from where she grew up. I grew up in East LA, so that's how I met Emery. I was there up until I was 15, and one of the reasons why we moved is because of what happened with Emery. It took a minute for Emery and Alejandra to get close. You said you didn't get along at the beginning. Why no, she didn't like me. <laughs> she, yeah, she didn't like me. She was so, <laughs> she was sassy. In the fall of 2005, she and Emery were the new kids together. Freshmen at Francisco Bravo High School. I don't know why she didn't like me, but we had PE class and homeroom together. And she had a group of friends and I had my group of friends. And, you know, I would hear things like, oh, she's talking shit about you. Or she said this, she said that. Um, so one day um, after school, she was standing outside outside the school and I came up to her and I was like, hey, you know, why are you talking shit? And then she's like, do you want to walk home while we talk about it? And I was like, yeah, sure. Emery was on her way to a football game at Wilson High School, a rival high school in East L.A., so she invited me. It just happened so fast. And that was it. They became friends. That fall of 2005, it was Alejandra and Emery together all the time. Every day after school. I don't know why that memory always comes to my mind, but I remember like um, the smell of Halloween during like during those years. I don't know why I, I can't describe it, but every time I go outside, I'm like, oh my God, it smells like East LA or it smells like Halloween. I personally loved East LA. You know, my parents didn't. Um, they thought it was pretty dangerous, but we had all our friends living in the area so we could walk to each other's house. Emery lived pretty f- far from me, but we would still do the walk. Like we would, um, I don't know if you knew where she lived, but I lived... City Terrace, right? Yeah, City Terrace. And I lived uh, like in Boyle Heights. So, but we would walk over to each other's house. Yeah. We were Must so... have been like a two hour... No. <laughs> no. Like we, an hour walk? No, we would, I would run because <laughs> my parents didn't know where I was at. So I would be like, oh, I'm going to go with my friend down the street. But really, I would walk all the way over there. How would you describe her personality? Just very happy, very bubbly, and um, she was so silly. Like, she would always try to make jokes. She loved singing and dancing. She loved Mariah Carey, so I remember her always singing and writing the lyrics down. And one of the things I remember the most is her laugh. Like, it was just so contagious. She would crack up every single time. Alejandra and Emery wrote letters to each other and left them in each other's lockers. They wrote about boys, their day, anything and everything. And when they hung out, they danced around their rooms and listened to Mariah Carey's entire catalog. I can only imagine them harmonizing to We Belong Together. There was a few people that, like I said, she would be silly with, she would joke around with, but if you didn't really know her, she wouldn't make the effort to really talk to you. And I think that's why a lot of girls used to, like, think she was conceited or, you know, try to fight her because they didn't really know her. 
she was in her own little world. Like she was serious. She didn't care what other people thought. You know, she wasn't trying to be everyone's friend. There's just times where girls would talk shit and she would get crazy. Um, you know, one time we were at a fair and she had this boyfriend. And I guess he was with another girl at the fair or something like that. So we actually left the fair and then she was like, oh, let's pass by, you know, let's pass by his house. And at the same time, we saw them going in, the girl and him. And she got out of the car and she was just trying to fight her and just get crazy. I think we're just like figuring it out. Yeah. Kids, you know, as teens, like your whole world revolves around a guy sometimes. She was so in love with him. Yeah, she loved him, but mm -mm. (laughs) were you like, "Mm." you know, I didn't really know him. I've seen him a few times, but mm, he just wasn't someone I wanted to talk to or, you know, be cool with. And, And she had her own group of friends. Did you ever attend any of the parties with Emery? No, my mom would have never let me go. So she that's why I'm telling you, like, she would tell me, like, oh, I'm gonna go to a party, do you wanna go? But she always knew that I was I wasn't gonna go. Um so yeah, I would just see the pictures. Does she tell like invite you before she goes? Yeah, yeah. She would let me know or she would be like she would be like, Oh, come on, we'll tell your mom this or that, you know. And I'm like, that's not gonna that's not gonna work. I was so scared. I'm like, no. <laughs> Our parents thought we were going to Pizzangueros because that's what we would tell them. This is Regina Baranian. She knew Emery from the party crew scene, but they also went way back. Well, Emery Munoz was a childhood friend of mine growing up since kindergarten. Like, some of the first things I've ever experienced were with her, you know? When we went on our first field trip in school, when we had our first crushes, our school dances and stuff, she was smart. She didn't take any shit. She was super sassy. She blended in. Everybody liked her. Oh, wow. Our mothers were friends when they were kids. Oh. I've known her for a very long time. We've been bonded through a lineage. She lived down the street from Emory in City Terrace. Their mothers were friends when they were growing up. We started to go to school together, and then we became really close friends. There was five of us. Me, Emory, Diane, Cynthia, and Ashley. So we were able to have a certain kind of freedom that other kids didn't have. I mean, her mom and my mom lived the same lifestyle. Me and Emery became friends because we're able to bond over the same disconnect, I think, that we've had with our mothers. Regina is in her 30s now, and she no longer lives in City Terrace. She was very straight up with me about that time. Now, when I look back, like, I have an 11-year-old daughter right now. And when I was her age, I had already smoked weed for the first time. I was walking home from school already. Like, I would never let her do any of that. Along with a bunch of neighborhood girls, Regina was in a party crew called Tempted to Touch. It it was fun because I felt like at that time we were experimenting and nobody was violating one another. We all made sure we got home on time. We all looked out for one another. This was a community thing. This was in the inner city communities that we did that because a lot of people, it was part of the culture. Regina explained to me how she understands the context of the party crew scene. In 2001 to 2006, you know, it evolved from 
the 90s to Tupac, Biggie, having backyard boogies. And then we were the new generation. Mm-hmm. Most of these kids that are partying in 2001 to 2006 were the fucking kids of these teen moms from the 90s. Like, you know, so I think that should be highlighted because people have a better understanding. A few months before Emery died, Regina and Emery had a falling out. Emery had been hanging out with new friends, the girls in the Vicious Ladies crew. And there was some teen drama. But their family connection ultimately kept their bond. My mom made me say sorry to her after she found out what had happened. Because, you know, she's like, what the fuck? I've been knowing her mom before you guys were even born, you know? Like, I don't care about your little girl cat drama. So I had apologized to her. We were, like, settled with our little scuffle. And then she went missing. We were all 14-year-old little girls walking down city terrace. That could have been any one of us, you know? You know, what do you remember about the week that Emery went missing? Mm, I remember... That day, she came to school really pissed off because of her mom. This is Alejandra, her high school friend again. She remembers that the last day she saw Emery, Emery was mad at her mom. And um, I remember she was just talking shit, like um, that her mom had gotten mad at her because I don't, I don't really know what happened, but I know she was mad at her over like getting ready or something like that. Um, and so she was really upset that morning. Alejandra and Emery had plans to go to Quinceañera. So they planned to go shopping to pick out outfits after school. But that same day, um, my mom called me and told me that I couldn't stay because I had to go to the dentist. So I was like, okay, you know, I'll call you later. So the next day, on Saturday, I called her and her mom was like, I, I don't know where she's at. According to Emery's mom... Emery had left the house that Friday afternoon to go to a friend's house. Emery's mom called Emery that night, but she didn't pick up. At that point, I was just like, damn, like, she went somewhere and didn't tell me, like, that's messed up. Remember, Emery would normally tell Alejandra about the parties, even if she couldn't go, just to keep her in the loop. So it seemed weird to her. The next day, Saturday, Emery's mom and Aunt Becky went to the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department station in East L.A. to file a missing persons report. And they said, how long has she been missing? And they said, you know, it hadn't been 24 hours. And then I said, aren't the first 48 hours the most critical ones? And right away they said that if she was 12, then they would look for her. But once you're a teenager, they don't. You have to wait the 48 hours. We reached out to the sheriff's department about this, but they declined to comment. They did confirm that, by law, the sheriff's department is supposed to take missing persons reports right away. There is no waiting period. So I made a fuss over it, so they did take a report from us. Days passed. And still, no one had heard from Emery. Her friends and family put up missing person flyers all over. 
using her school portrait as the photo. I stayed after school and I remember putting up the last poster and I got like this really horrible feeling. It was a Wednesday, January 25th, six days since Emery went missing. And um, I left, it was after school, it was like around five, I left and when I got home, my friend called me and she was like, I just saw the cops like at the school and I heard what happened. Um, so I ran back and that's when they told me that they had found her. Emery's sister, Crystal, also remembers that day. It was just, it was, it's a very vivid timeline that seems that it went on forever and ever, but like there's so little memory to actually like pull out of it. It just feels like it was everlasting. Like nothing felt, nothing felt right. Like I said, everything felt super gloomy. Everything was like, when I picture all this, I picture just gray clouds in the sky. It was probably like the sunniest day in January, but I picture clouds. It was, it, it was a hard, I mean, to this day it's hard, but that, that time, it was, it was so off, so dark. Emery's body was found at a warehouse in Boyle Heights, a few miles away from her home. LEPD described the warehouse as a place where teens would gather to throw parties. Immediately, it was assumed that she must have been at a party that night she went missing, or that someone from the party crew scene knew something. When we found out that they found her in a warehouse, supposedly that's where parties have been held, but that doesn't connect Emery to a certain party that night or fire party are the reason why she got killed. They're trying to connect two things that don't go together. This is Regina, Emery's childhood friend again. I'll tell you right now, Emery is no fucking way that she would leave the house going to go to a fire party with no bag, no backpack. She's not going in a Tinkerbell sweater with tennis shoes. That was not how we went. I feel like when I see her story, it's I feel like it's misdirected, for sure. Like, yes, Emery was a teenager going to a fire party. But how do you not know some serial killer freaking picked her up and just dumped her body there out of coincidence? I just don't like how her image is put out there. You know, like, this beautiful 14-year-old girl missing and going to a fire party and she never came comes home. Like, it's a good storyline, but... It doesn't give closure to her family. Like Regina says, it's a good storyline. But how much of it is true? So that's what I want to find out. And I'm going to be real with you. I know that when you hear unsolved murder, you immediately think, okay, true crime podcast, that this is going to all be about finding the person who did this to her. And yes, we will get into her case. From the investigation into her death and the mysteries that remained around it. When I got to the scene, that I knew that I knew she had been dead for a while. And it appeared to me that she didn't die there. To the way in which her case got co-opted by a local politician. But we have to put everyone on notice that these parties may and can be dangerous and the city should be doing more to stop these to how we were targeted by police 
who believed the party crew scene was a threat and mostly gang members. It started off as the normal raiding the party with one cop car or sometimes 10 or 15 cop cars blocking off the street, helicopters showing up and flashing everybody. It is a um, L.A. City gang that started off as a tag-banging gang. They are morphing into a uh, traditional uh, Hispanic turf gang. But in Emery's case, I also see another question that is important to explore. Why did party crews get blamed for her death? And what does that say about us? It's easy to forget that Emery and I were just kids, navigating through a world that wasn't made for us. We built something shiny and fun, a world of our own. In the next episode, I look back at my own teenage years to understand the thrill of the party crew scene. I had friends catching me through my window to sneak out. I mean, 10.30 is when the party starts. <laughs> I can't believe I drove my mom's like cleaning Astro van and drove with girls to parties. <laughs> um, but... <laughs> That's next time. This episode was written, reported, and hosted by me, Janice Yamoka. Our show is produced and reported by Sofia Palisa Carr, Victoria Alejandro, and Kyle Chang, and edited by Antonia Serigido. Additional editing by Annie Aviles. Fact-checking by Nidia Bautista. Sound design and original music composition by Kyle Murdoch. Our supervising producer is Janet Lee. Art by Julie Ruiz and Victoire Coyon. Our executive producer from Vice Audio is Kate Osborne. Our executive producers from LA Studios are Antonia Serigido and Leo G. Our vice president of podcasts from LA Studios is Shana Naomi Krocknell. Special thanks to the UCLA Department of Communication Archive for access to their news collection. Party Crew's The Untold Story is a production of Elias Studios and Vice Audio in partnership with iHeart's Michael Dura Podcast Network. For more podcasts, listen to the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And hey, were you in a party crew? Send us your party flyers or photos. I'd love to see them. Even a voice message about your memories, anything. You can send us a message or a picture at partycrews at eliasstudios.com. Support for this podcast is made possible by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe that quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people.